Well, how's it going? Happy Father's Day. Um, I do want to kind of give a disclaimer before I launch in. Um, I mentioned this to some of you. Uh, we're in the series Beauty and the Beast. I think Rick might have been chuckling as he kind of set the calendar and put me on this Sunday and next Sunday because uh, we're dealing with kind of a, a heavy topic this Sunday and next Sunday. Um, dealing with sexual immorality. Um, if you're, uh, if you have kids in here that you're like, um, I, I maybe don't want them in here. Um, the bigs class is more than welcome to take those kids. Um, and so feel free to, to go now if you want. Um, uh, so today as we, uh, so it's Father's Day and you're like, holy cow, we're doing this on Father's Day. Um, I, I think, uh, I think there's an aspect where I'm excited about, um, what God has for us on Father's Day, um, because, um, there's, there's really two types of fathers in the world. There's the fathers that are very beastly and um, abrasive and overwhelming. Um, and then there's an aspect of beauty that, that fatherhood has to it that's, uh, that's humble and that's, um, that's serving and that's loving. And, um, and so uh, this morning what I want to do is... Um, I want, and I believe what the scripture has, uh, there will be an element, uh, the terminology that came up as I was talking with these two guys right before we came, right before we started was, there will be an element where this morning might feel a little bit like a full court press, okay? Um, and, and the reason why you do a full court press is because um, the other team is crafty and good and, uh, and you need to come at it with a certain approach. Um, and, and the aspect of what the scriptures bring out um, this morning and kind of lend to that, to that nature. And so, um, so let me pray for us. Um, today, here's my prayer. Let me just tell you what, what, I, what I believe God wants to do this morning. Um, we're contrasting beauty and beast. And what it looks like as the church where our identity reflects more beastly um, versus where our identity reflects more beautiful in regards to the nature and character of God. And so um, this morning, uh, think for a second about a beast. When you release a beast, what happens? Harm, right? Uh, it's more detrimental to society. Um, but when, when beauty is released, there's human flourishing. There's societal flourishing and so today, my prayer is that God would take captive the beast that is our sinful nature and set us free to be, free to be the people of God that he's called us to be. So uh, let me just stop and pray. Uh, Papa, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, the truthfulness that is there. And God, I sit under the weight of the calling as a preacher to preach the whole counsel of God, um, not just what um, is comfortable or um, desirable, um, not just uh, what will send us out with a smile on our face, um, but God, as your word probes our hearts and God will address areas of our hearts that hurt and that you long to rescue this morning and set us free, I pray that by your spirit you would, you would do that. For, for some, even in this room, that are sitting in the weight and the bondage of sin, um, God, I could think of no greater gift to, to a father than to set them free to, to the vision of a life that would be freedom in Jesus and not bondage under the weight of sin. And so, Spirit, I am desperate for you, for you this morning. 
Uh, in Christ's name, amen. So the context, if you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we'll be in at, at verse 12. So the context of this passage, when, when we're dealing with... When we're dealing with 1 Corinthians, here's what, here's what Paul is addressing. He's addressing a church that is living in the midst of a perverse culture, namely Corinth. Um, and he's writing because there's a concern that they're more interested in reflecting and being like the culture than actually resisting and being who God's called them to be. And so he's, he's pressing in on them. And so we jump in at verse 12 and it goes like this. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So Paul comes right out of the gate, and he's like, I'm going to confront this false view of freedom. What does it mean to be free? Um, you'll notice the, the all things are lawful for me is in, is in quotes. Um, some commentators believe that that was like this Corinthian slogan that they would claim and live by. And Paul comes back, and he's like, no, there's a problem with that because two things he brings up. One... Is the way that you're living helpful? And two, is the way that you're living, is it dominating your life? Is it dominating your mind? Is it dominating your actions? Because we all know that freedom in Christ doesn't mean Philippians 4.13, in the name of Jesus, right? I can do whatever I want in the name of Jesus, right? No, freedom in Christ does not connotate, I can do anything. Um, Freedom in Christ calls us to something different Paul says this later in, in chapter 10, he, he, almost identical language, chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Build up. So as, as the people of God, one of the things that must be in our minds regarding what does it look like for me to walk out my calling as a Christian is, do these actions build up? Do they lift up? Do they encourage? Because it goes on to say, let, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. So we live, we live in a community. We live in a family. We live among a people. We're, we're not on an island by ourselves that can do whatever we want that has no effect on anybody. We're part of a community. So what, what does it mean to be free in Christ? Let me, let me walk through some things. Here's what freedom in Christ means. It means you're saved from something to something. Okay? Um, A a couple examples. Sin. The idea of freedom in Christ is that we were in bondage to sin, and we've been rescued out of that and called to righteousness. So we're, we're, we're in, in essence, set free. We're saved from something to something. Or we we are surrounded by a life of God death and destruction and damnation and through the work of Christ on the cross I've been brought from death to life where I am now called into to abundance I'm free or I'm, I'm, I'm gone from a life that's selfish and all about me and I'm saved into a family I'm saved into a community I'm saved into a people where who I am, how I live, and what I do isn't for my own good. It's for the good of, of others. I'm saved from something to something. I'm set free from sin, so it's less about what I get to do and more about what Christ has done for me. 
that, that I'm freed up to be everything God's created me to be. This is what Paul is refuting. It's where I move from a performance-based life that I have to juggle the responsibilities of religion and I'm, I'm transferred into a kingdom that's based in grace. Much of what we read at the beginning of the service that Rick led us through, it's, it's bathed in, in grace. It's an identity. Not that I get to do whatever I want or live however I want or even set my own identity. Who do I want to be? But it comes to this reality is I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. God, take my life. I am yours. I'm yours. And this is the picture of, of what it would look like for the bride of Christ to, to, be, to be beautiful and flourish in the church and in society and in the world because the beastly mindset is I get to do whatever I want. But the beautiful mindset is, no, I'm, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. God, take my life. I'm yours. I want to be a vessel. I want to be yours. So um, one of my primary responsibilities as a dad is to teach my kids to go from being boys to being men or to teach my girls from being girls to being women. And one of the things that I think marks that profoundly is the difference between giving and taking. Right? I mean, like, what do we, if you're, if you're a, a parent in the room, what do you battle all the time as a parent, especially with young, immature kids? They want to take, they want to get for themselves. That was my toy. I had that first. Does anybody else get that argument? Like, I was here first. Anybody else? Okay, like, we need to do a session later on, on the faultiness of that whole, like, I was here first. I sat here first. I had that first. Like, okay, breathe. Um, we're, we'll, we'll make it. Um, but it's taking it, maturity, growing up in maturity is going from a life that sucks everything out of others for you to a life that, hey, I'm, about, I'm not about me. It's not about me. That's, so that's one of my primary responsibilities. And that's what Paul begins to address. So let's continue on. And he goes on to address the issue of Christian freedom as it relates to sexual immorality. Verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So this slogan, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, was also believed to be this slogan among the culture there. And here was the reasoning that since everything is permitted, since food is for the stomach and the stomach's for food, and since all, this was their reasoning, since all bodily appetites are, are really essentially pretty much alike, that means the body's for sex and sex is for the body, because ultimately God's going to destroy everything. God's going to destroy the body. God's going to destroy food. So why does it matter? Why does it matter how I live? Why does it matter what I do? Um, this is what Paul's ad- addressing, because he goes in and he, he uses this terminology, the body's not meant for sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is translated, it is the word porneia. Here comes the full court press. All right, you ready? Pornea, which is, where do we get that word? Pornography, right? Let me give you some information. Um, much of this probably won't surprise you. Um, porn is an $8 billion business, it's estimated. $8 billion business that's consumed by more than 50 million Americans. 
That's roughly 24.6 million porn sites that make up 12% of the internet. It rivals that of iTunes digital merchandise sales and the bottled water industry in the United States. And that doesn't account for all the free stuff out there that doesn't require purchase. Uh, here's a couple of statistics. This one's a little bit older, but I, th- uh, I think uh, it kind of gives us a picture. In 2005, pornography accounted for 69% of the total pay-per-view internet content market, outpacing news, sports, and video games. And that's the 12-year-old statistic that my guess is it's probably even worse than that. Um, Here's one put out by the U.S. Department of Justice. Never before in the history of telecommunications media in the United States has so much indecent and obscene material been so easily accessible by so many minors in so many American homes with so few restrictions. And I think the I think the danger for us can be, like, we read those and we can, we can just, like, shake our head. We can just, man, we live in such a perverse culture. And we do. But part of what Paul's addressing is that these issues also reside in the church. Um, there's, a, there's an organization called the Barna Group that basically they exist to help do statistics and analysis uh, among culture and, and a lot for the church. Here, here's something they found that 64% of self-identifying Christian men and 15% of self-identifying Christian women view pornography at least once a month. What's, what's striking to me is that number is 1% different than the non-Christian population, in particular among men. So non-Christian men, it's at 65%. So it, it's, it's an issue in the church, no doubt. Um, there's an organization that's recently come up, maybe some of you have heard of it, put out by the non-Christian culture as to how pornography is ruining our society. An uh, organization called uh, The New Drug. And I want to show you, um, Jeff's going to load a video um, of that. I, wanna, I just want to show you a video. Don't worry, it's not um, graphic or um, anything like that. Just the, <laughs> the full-court press is going to become a half-court press here for, for this, the duration of this video. Um, but I just want to, it, it kind of helps give some, uh, uh, just some parameters and some information as to how this really is even affecting our society. So um, let's watch this. An earthquake hit Nepal. Within 54 seconds, it had leveled over half a million homes and killed nearly 10,000 people. It was devastating. But what happened next was incredible. Almost immediately, neighbors from China rushed across the border to clear rubble. Within 15 minutes, India had mobilized a full-scale relief effort, including medical supplies and rescue dogs. Before the day was over, people, money, and supplies were pouring in from 60 countries, 35 relief organizations, and countless businesses. Consider the world. More than ever before, we're able to help reduce human suffering anywhere, from natural disasters to a child's medical bills. In a remarkable way, technology can focus our attention and rally us around a single worthy cause, combining millions of individual acts of kindness into a massive force for good, or combining millions of individual selfish acts into a massive force for harm. If the private act of viewing porn can rewire a brain, devastate a relationship, and destroy a family, what happens when that act is multiplied by a hundred million? 
What happens when it isn't just you seeking ever more explicit pornographic material, but your next door neighbor, your teacher, your doctor? What happens when it's half your country? Today's rising generation is facing the issue of pornography at a level our world has never seen. In 2015, 4.3 billion hours of pornography were watched on a single website. That's half a million years. What are the consequences of 4 billion hours when pornography has been shown to increase marital infidelity by over 300%? What are the consequences when 88% of the scenes depict aggression or violence? What are the consequences when the porn industry has now been linked to abuse on set, child exploitation, and even human trafficking? When we discover that products are tied to abusive things, like child labor, we're willing to change what we buy. Isn't it time we had the same conversation about pornography's human impact? Somewhere, right now, actual lives are being made far worse by the million little mouse clicks around the world. So, choose love and humanity. Click on something else, take a stand, and pour your time and energy into something, anything, that might just make this world a little better for all of us. Um, I think that we can tend to uh, take actions and things that we do that others might not know about, and we can begin to compromise, and we can begin to uh, justify our actions. Um, And I'll get into that a little bit more in a second. One of the things that was striking me about that video was um, when when you exponentially multiply the impact of a sinful act across numerous homes and numerous places and, and across the world, what it begins to do to, to society and what it begins to do to people. And what Paul is addressing here is what would it look like if the church was actually the church and began to portray the beauty of Christ in this area and in this realm, where we began to fight and be the people God's called us to be and fight for biblical sexuality and the honoring of of human life and the honoring of the Imago Dei and the, what it means to be in the image of God. Paul continues in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So Paul begins to bring in this illustration of oneness. Um, he uses, at the very end there, he uses the idea of, of what it looks like to become one with the Lord. Um, so I want us to think, we're in this series on the bride of Christ. I want us to think about that picture of um, whether you're in a marriage or not, whether you're single or, or, or married or desire to be married or never desire to be married. Um, we all can understand the context or, or at least the, the idea of what it would look like for one man to, to faithfully be devoted to one woman and one woman to faithfully be devoted to one man. That's, that's the picture of, of oneness. In faithfulness as a bride to her husband, or vice versa, but also for those who aren't married, but also for those who are married, what does it look like for us, the church, as the bride of Christ, to be faithful to our husband, namely God? In the same way that the scriptures would call a husband to to be a one woman man and and, and a man to be a one woman man husband. That's what we're called to be, fully devoted 
to the Lord, fighting against what the culture is deeming, it's okay. Just a little bit, it's okay. Oh, they have clothes on, so that makes it better. Oh, it's just occasionally, so that makes it better. No, listen to the words that Paul uses in, I'm sorry, not Paul. Paul didn't write the whole Bible, even though you might think so. Um, Genesis, uh, Genesis 2, listen to these words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It's faithfulness. It's fidelity. It's I'm committed to you, which doesn't mean perfection. Right? We move from, the gospel moves us from a, from a performance-oriented life to a grace-oriented life. So it doesn't mean perfection, but what it means is honesty and a commitment to the fight. Right? Any, anyone ever been perfect in a relationship? No, what do you do? You don't get, oh, we got one guy over here. Let me see Rick after the service. Um, I love saying that. That's like my new thing to draw, point people to Rick. Um, he'll set you straight. <laughs> but that faithfulness, and they, that they may become one flesh. Like, think about what is the identity of a bride? What is it? You're no longer single. You're, you're no longer your own. The two become one. You're devoted. You're committed. You can't flirt. You can't fantasize. You can't dream. Like, you're, you're in it. This is your commitment for life. And that's an unbelievably beautiful thing that the world needs and needs to see. This is the argumentation that Paul is using. That I can't do whatever my urges incline me to do. That I must continually take my sinful nature and my cravings in many ways, especially in regard to sexuality, that are God's good design. And I, and, and I channel them in the way that God's called and God's, God leads. And I don't allow the enemy and sinful nature to distort and to twist and to ruin what God said is good, beautiful, and worship when done as he's called and he's led Don't underestimate the impact of your sexual faithfulness to God. Hear that. Don't underestimate the impact of your sexual faithfulness to God. And here's what I want to be really clear about. Whether that means today going forward or not. Like, do you understand that? So, like, like some of I, I'm well aware of this. Some of us we're sitting under. I just feel the heaviness of like I failed so much in this area. Man, I remember when I, when I was younger, and this was such a stronghold for my life. And I just told told a couple friends, it's like I'm never going to find freedom. And I had one friend look me in the eye, and he goes, "I promise you, you'll find freedom." And he was absolutely right. Because the truthfulness isn't in what, is your, what, what has happened in your past. The truthfulness is in what is the Spirit of God set free to enable you to be who He's called you to be going forward through repentance and faith and accountability and community that we're saved into a body that's not like, what have you done? But it's like, yeah, me too. It might look very different. It might not even be in the area of sex. It might be in the area of something very different. But it's heinous before the Lord. But he's made provision and forgiveness where the enemy wants to beat us down.
don't underestimate the impact of your sexual faithfulness to God. You're like, I'm one person. Like, those statistics, like, is it really going to make a difference? Don't, for a second, begin to entertain that lie that it's not going to make a difference. Because you live in a community, you live among a family, and if you're a parent, if you're a dad, you better believe that what you watch, what you put in your mind, what you're meditating on isn't only impacting your marriage, which is a whole nother conversation, but you better believe it's impacting how you love and train your kids. Or if you don't have kids, the younger generation or even your peers at work, how you interact with them on on everything. I mean, you want to talk about hate crimes. You want to talk about like the desensitization to the objectification of women like, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get all up in arms about hate crimes and racial issues, and we should. But there's an issue of the objectification of women here that I think we just gloss over as men. And we just, well, everyone's, everyone's there, everyone's doing it. So whether you're a father, whether you're married as a man or woman, or whether you're single, single people... Don't underestimate the significance of your faithfulness to God in this area. Let me put it this way. Your faithfulness to fight. Because it's a fight, and that fight will never end. I don't, care. I don't care if you get married and if you can have sex every day. That fight does not end. Because the enemy is crafty and sin is evil. But we're saved into a community that brings freedom Here's one of the lures of porn is that you can do it under the radar. Like cell phones are just such a challenge. I was at Subway. This was probably a year or so ago. And there's two men at Subway sitting in a booth eating their Subway sandwich. And they're laughing at something on their phone. And I just kind of was walking by and I glanced over. And there's a picture of a naked woman that they're just sitting in Subway eating their sandwich looking at this. And I was just like so grieved. That was just the normal conversation in a Subway restaurant on their phone. What happens when we get, get alone, get by ourselves? Don't underestimate that. This idea of being under the radar, or just a little bit, or just a glance, or it's not the really bad stuff. Like none of that. Listen, listen do we hear ourselves rationalizing when Christ says, listen, you're my people? Called you to be pure. Called you to be righteous. I've called you to fight the good fight of faith. That doesn't mean perfection, but it means upholding a standard of human dignity in the way we view one another. I want you to hear this on the topic of objectifying women. I think this is. I don't think we. Re- I didn't realize this. I came across this quote. Um, I'm a, I'm a subscriber of Covenant Eyes. It's a paid service that monitors all my devices and sends reports to, to, to people about how I've, what I've looked at, what I've not looked at, what I've searched. Um, it's, it's incredible. And so this organization, Covenant Eyes, um, I found this statistic or this, this quote. Listen to this. Once the pornography actress, actresses are in the industry, they have high rates of substance abuse, typically alcohol and cocaine, depression, borderline personality disorder. 
The experience I find most common among the performers is that they have to be drunk, high, or disassociated in order to go to work. Their work environment is particularly toxic. The terrible work life of the pornography performer is often followed by an equally terrible home life. They have an increased risk of sexual transmitted diseases, including HIV, domestic violence, and have about a 25% chance of making a marriage that lasts as long as three years. It's heartbreaking. And, and, and the reason why I bring that up is, is I think as, as, as individuals of what it looks like for us to uphold people as image bearers, and especially men and how we view women and the tendency for men to objectify women, which is exactly what's happening here. The women, they have to go to this place to actually do their job. I don't have to sit here and convince you that that's evil. I don't have to sit here and convince you to be brokenhearted about that because it's heavy. And so I wanted to give you that tension to be like, listen, what does it look like for us as the people of God to be the church and fight for purity and fight for faithfulness to God with our actions, with our eyes, with the way we speak about one another, with the way we confront each other regarding these issues. And listen, the gospel is too powerful for when we're the church that lives out a pursuit of faithfulness to God, it's too powerful for it not to make an impact where you're going and what you're doing and how you're living. It's too powerful for it not to make an impact in how you raise your daughters, dads. It's too powerful. It will make a difference. Don't believe the lie that it's not. It's our mission that we would be a beautiful fragrance sent into the world this is what John 17 talked about in this oneness that, that they may be one as just as we are one, the Father in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Continue on, verse 18. It says, flee sexual immorality. Run, run. You get that picture of Joseph in the Old Testament where he's lured by this woman, and what does he do? He, he flees, he runs. That's what he's talking about. Can I just put out this piece of advice? This is just for free. It's not even in my notes. But one of the most amazing pieces of advice I've ever received, and it's not even that amazing, but it's amazing. Listen, to this. Here's, here's the truth. Put yourself in an environment where you can succeed. It's not complicated. But what's owning us as God's people is we put ourselves in environments that just destroy us. Right, parents, how can you put your kids in an environment where they can succeed and not be susceptible? Where we can protect them and have conversations, listen, that we don't want to have with them, but we have to have with them. How can we put ourselves in an environment where we can succeed? Because this is destroying you. It's destroying your marriage. It's destroying your family. It's destroying your kids. And if you believe for a second that that your failure to fight isn't leading to some aspect of destruction, you're believing a lie. Average age of kids start looking at porn as 10. Sexting, sending nudes pictures of themselves 
of themselves. Hooking up with friends is the norm. It's the norm. And we as God's people have to be in a full court press in how we handle this and how we think about this. The passage goes on. It says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Through the way we live our lives, God calls us to glorify him. Through what we do, through what we put into our mouths, through what we look at with our eyes, through what we listen to with our ears, it matters. And it's shaping and forming our minds that then are shaping and forming the minds of those that we're mentoring and we're leading. And we think it's not. Here's the beastly reality. It's defining your own identity and living however you want. But the beautiful reality in the beauty or the beast contrast, or as one of my kids calls it, the booty and the beast. (laughs) Daddy, can we watch Booty and the Beast? You betcha. What's beautiful is saying, I'm not my own. My cravings, my longings, submit them to Christ. Let him shape them. Let him destroy the sinful nature within us. God, take my life. It's going from a life that's take, 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 use and abuse to a life that's give, serve, bless. Listen, church, can I say this as boldly and humbly as I can? It's time to grow up. To go from taking, taking, taking to serving and blessing And not just doing what feels right and feels good. It's time to grow up. I want to share a quote as I wrap up. A very profound book that I'm reading that I think is instrumental in our day. It's called Good Faith by Gabe Lyons and Dave Kinnaman. And here's the gist of the book. It's how do we be Christians that that offer some value to a world and a culture that really thinks Christianity is ludicrous. How can you live with good faith? And, and, and he addresses, in this book, they address this issue of, of, of sexuality. And listen to what they say. And I think this, this is kind of a launching point for us that we can, okay, what do we do here? What do we do about this? Listen to these words. The Christian community, the household of God is another way to put it, is the only remedy for the relational and sexual sickness that has infected the culture. We believe that. The church, God's people, living as God's people, is the only answer. Because it's the only place that can find forgiveness. It's the only place you can find true healing that will change the heart. Okay, sorry, let me get back to the quote. It's the only remedy for relational and sexual sickness that has infected the culture. How we address matters of sex and sexuality must embody three things. Love, belief, and life. We need to love others well and see, that, see them as made in the image of God even when they screw up and let us down. That's huge. It's offering grace. It's offering forgiveness. And in terms of belief, we have to articulate a biblical vision of healthy sex and sexuality. And we must be willing to live out our love and belief in the community with real people. God's household offers life after the sexual revolution. 
But our idea as family must expand to make room for everyone who needs healing. Here's the amazing thing. Is that there's healing in this. Like as I look out and as I've been talking and I've just been seeing faces and I've been seeing heaviness and I've been reading and sensing what the Spirit is saying or doing. But here's what you need to know. Is that there's a way forward for the church that embodies grace and forgiveness and conversation that's holistic and helpful. And so what I want you to hear is don't go out those doors being like, well, that was the crappiest Father's Day message I've ever heard because now I'm sitting in the weight of my own bondage. When what I have to tell you is there's unbelievable grace and forgiveness. And so I want to put um, the elders of this church. Can, oh, I'm just going to do this. El, um, Jeff, Megan, will you guys stand up? Mike and Rachel, will you guys stand up? Rick, well, I'm not going to call you up. But here's what I want. I just stand up, Jen, for a second. These individuals that are right here are safe people to go to. Like, if you're, if you're walking through this, in the heaviness of this, I don't want to dismiss and we'll respond to the Lord and, and you just be like, like, what do I do? I'm just going to be really straight with you. Finding freedom and grace in this is going to take you probably approaching, oh, my wife should probably stand up too, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry, babe. Um, uh, is probably going to take you approaching it doesn't have to be one of us, but I just want you to know, this is a, these are safe families. These are the leaders of this church that will welcome you with open arms and say, we want to walk with you and help you. And so you guys, you guys can sit down. I just want to kind of give that as a, hey, here's the next step. Listen, we've got to be a church that fights for purity and faithfulness and believe that it matters in a culture where, where so many are believing that it doesn't matter. Uh, let's pray and just entrust all this to the Lord for what he, what he has for us. Father, thank you for your word. It's heavy because it probes our sin. It's weighty because it points out where we are a mess and where we aren't okay. And God, I thank you that your word and your gospel leads us to the reality that um, there's forgiveness and grace. And thank you for the unbelievable gift of calling us out of our selfishness, to be a pure and faithful bride. And so, God, I pray over those in this room that are sitting under the weight of their own sin and that probably weren't even looking forward to coming this morning and and maybe are really, really just being owned by their defeat. And I pray that they would be bold to confess and repent. I pray that they would be bold to, to ask for help. And God, that you would lead us, especially this place, to be a people that's faithful to the fight of righteousness and purity. In Christ's name I pray, amen.